Thank you. Thank you all. Ivan mentioned earlier on that um, he's not a native English speaker. I ought to make the same apology myself. I come from Sunderland, which definitely rules me out of the native English speaking class. Though, then again, would being a native English speaker help in Edinburgh? Shall I leave now? Thank you very much for your fellowship this weekend. I've had a great time meeting with you. For those who didn't come this morning and didn't come yesterday, I'm sorry you missed a treat. We've had a great time hearing what different people are doing and learning what the Lord is doing around the world. And we're going to carry on doing that in a second. Something that is always worrying when you're a preacher. There are all sorts of things that are worrying when you're a preacher. But one of them is that when you're sitting there at the start of the service and the person who introduces the service starts to say some of the things which are in your sermon. And you're thinking, do I need to cut that out? Well, this evening, every person who has spoken up has actually said something which is in my notes. If it was once, I'd think this is a coincidence. And I might try and pick it out. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, I've got to remember this. And then somebody else said something. And there's too much that's been said already that is actually among the things that I've been praying, praying about as I've studied tonight's passage. So as we go through, it's a quiz. I won't ask you afterwards, but see if you can remember the things that Datsir said that relate to what I'm saying. The things that Barbara said that relate. The things that Alex said. Because I think the Lord is speaking this evening. You're always very cagey about saying things like that as a preacher. It's... You know, it's seeming to put things in your own heart. But I could never have planned this. And yet everyone who spoke up has actually stolen a little bit of my sermon. That doesn't mean I'm not going to preach it anyway. But I think it shows that God is at work. So let's read the passage, which we're going to be turning to. It's the same passage that we looked at this morning, but not the same sermon. Matthew chapter 28, starting to read at verse 16. All the passages that we look at will come up on the screen, so if you don't want to turn to the Bible, you can see it straight ahead of you. Or if, like me, you're short-sighted and need to take your glasses on and off, it's easy just to keep looking upwards. Let's read the passage together. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are words that you said to your disciples. And so we just ask that as we, who are seeking to be your disciples, who are seeking to be followers of you, that as we read and think about these words, we just pray that you would speak anew to us so that we can be obedient followers. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Now, the saving sermon is effectively part two from this morning's sermon. Um, this means I could actually have the introduction as the whole of this morning's sermon and preach for an hour, but I suspect that won't be too popular. But I'd just like to give a little quick reminder 
of what we said this morning. This morning we looked at the very first verse of this passage. Um, actually the second verse. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And we just considered that before the disciples went off to start a world Christian movement, the very first thing they did was worshipped. Christianity, world mission, was born in worship. And then we looked towards the end of the age, when Christ will have gathered all his people together from all the nations. And we saw that the end of world mission too is worship. And this is summed up wonderfully in a quote from John Piper, which I'll quote again, if we can have the next slide. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. The disciples started the world's Christian movement, started this worldwide movement on that hilltop in Galilee by worshipping Jesus. Worship is the beginning and end of Christian mission. And worship is the beginning and end of Christian mission because worship focuses on God and God himself is actually the beginning and end of mission. It's God who sends us out on mission and it's to bring him glory that we go out on mission. It's all about God. And just one more thing to say from this morning. Mission in this passage, Matthew 28, is about making disciples. It never ever says that there is a special class of people who do this. This is a word given to all of Jesus' disciples. And if you're one of Jesus' disciples, the responsibility for making disciples is yours. Some of you may be called to go to Port-au-Prince. Some of you may just be called to go to Portobello. But you are all called to make disciples. We're all called to be missionaries. Some in more exotic locations than others. But we are all called to go and make disciples wherever we're going. So with those thoughts in mind, I'd like to turn to the passage. Start off by looking at verse 18. Jesus, said, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The disciples came up onto the hillside where Jesus was. They saw him and they fell down and worshipped him. And Jesus turns back to them and says, You are right to worship me because all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now just picture this for a moment. There is Jesus. There is a bunch of disciples. We don't know how many. There won't have been many. And Jesus says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth is given to me. Who did he think he was kidding? This one man, on his own, with a small group of people, no army, and he's claiming all authority in heaven and earth. Sounds like megalomania. It sounds like madness. Until you remember the person who was speaking. The person who was speaking is the one who, a month or so beforehand, had been crucified and had died and then had rose again. The one who was speaking is the one who had performed miracles 
in front of thousands of witnesses. The one who had proved by his acts that he was something special. When Jesus claimed to have all authority, this wasn't madness, this wasn't megalomania. Jesus' acts over the preceding three years showed that he knew what he was talking about. And he knew that he had the authority he was talking about. This is the one who said that his message would go out to the ends of the earth. And it has. When Jesus said, all authority is given to me, he was right. The evidence demonstrates that. Now, if all authority has been given to Jesus, let's just think this through a bit. What does it mean? All authority. That covers everything. There's no area where Jesus doesn't have authority. And that includes the area of world mission. That includes the area of sending his disciples out into the world. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he was sending them out under his authority. Now, we've said mission starts with God. It's God who sends us out. Mission ends with God. It's for God we're going out. But also, all authority is given to Jesus to get the job done. So it starts with God, it ends with God, and it's carried out under his authority and in his power. All world mission, all that Jesus is asking us to do, is carried out under his authority. Think about what that implies. This means that Jesus has got the authority to make sure the job gets done. As he sends his disciples out to make disciples, as he sends his followers out to make disciples around the world, he actually has the authority to make sure that the job will be achieved. You know, very often, when you have a missionary weekend or when mission speakers speak, this is the point where they lay the guilt trip on you and say, you have to get involved in mission because God needs you. The passage tells us he has the authority to achieve what he wants to achieve. And as Alex said about your money, also about our service, he doesn't need us. He can get the job done without us. Just look at Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on where you want to put the emphasis, 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled. It doesn't say here, the earth may possibly be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as long as you go out and do something for God. It's not saying, God is pretty certain that he can fill the earth with the, no with the knowledge of his glory as long as you are obedient. It is telling us that God will achieve his purpose. He'll get the job done with us or without us. Next slide. I'll just click. We often think of the Christian church as being surrounded by enemies, as being pressed on on every side. But words of Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Matthew to Peter tell another story. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
The gates of Hades will not overcome it. We have the idea that the church is being attacked. The powers of darkness surround us and are trying to destroy us. Jesus says the gates of hell will not overcome his church. And gates are not an offensive weapon. It's us, the church, who are attacking the gates of hell. Hell is on the defensive. Satan is on the defensive. And his gates will not be able to resist the coming of the church. It is not the gates of hell that's attacking us. Just think of the image, gates moving forward in a battlefield. The image that Jesus gives us is of the church storming hell to rescue the people inside. The work that God has to do will be done. Why? Because Jesus has all authority. Now, before I go on, I have to clarify what I've just said. I just said, God doesn't need us. And at this point, I suspect Alec and the Church Mission Council are getting a bit worried, getting a bit nervous, and are threatening to drag me down from the pulpit. So let me clarify that. Yes, God doesn't need us. But one of the most amazing things that the scripture has to tell us is that God wants to use us anyway. God chooses to use people like you and I. God makes us his messengers. Rather than have me preaching here today, he can have an angel shining with light and power speaking more clearly, speaking more definitely and with greater authority than I ever could. God could have written his message across the, the sky for us tonight so that when we step out of the building, we can just look up and there is God's word for us today, written in lightning across the heavens so that we could not do anything but obey it. But rather than that, God has chosen me a middle-aged, overweight bloke from Sunderland, to give his word. Because God chooses to use human beings. Even if he's decided to use human beings, he actually, difficult though it is to imagine, has more intelligent people than me he could call on. Better looking, better speakers. But no, God chooses to use fallible human beings to take his message around the world. He could have done it in much more spectacular fashion. But you know, he doesn't want to do that. He wants us lot. He wants us in this room to take his message around the world. He invites us to be involved with him. We're aware that when Christ came to the earth, he humbled himself. Amazingly, God Almighty, as the Christmas carol says, contracted down to humanity. The one who created us becomes a little baby. God humbled himself. But throughout history, God continues to humble himself by choosing mere human beings as his messengers. He chooses to use people who are fallible. When we sin, it's not just us that are affected, 
It's not just your reputation on the line, it's God's reputation on the line. When we fail him, it's God we're failing. Yet he continues to use us because he delights to do so. He loves to do so. He wants to do so. As Paul says, the treasure of the gospel is in jars of clay. And why is the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay? It's because our God is absolutely crackers about clay jars. He loves us to bits. And the best thing he can give to us is the honour of taking his gospel around the world. And he invites us to be involved with him. So, I'm standing here. I'm not pleading with you to get involved in world mission. Because if you don't, the world won't be reached for Christ. I'm pleading with you to get involved in world mission because this is the best thing you can do with your life. And because God has given that for you. you know, you're not being invited to turn up for some Saturday morning football team which never wins and can't actually gather together enough players. You're invited to turn out for the team that's guaranteed to win the SPL this year. You're invited by God to be on the winning team and take an active role alongside him, moving with him. There's no greater privilege on this planet than being involved with our God in reaching the world. And if you don't want to be involved, he's going to do it anyway. And actually, that just shows you're a fool to miss out. In fact, we blood. Let's move on. Next, next verse, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go to all nations, baptize, um, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son. The first thing to notice here is that mission is about making disciples and baptizing them. It's about helping people to grow as Christians making disciples, and helping them to fit into a Christian community, the baptism. There are two parts to what Jesus is giving us in mission. There is helping Christians to grow and helping them to integrate into a Christian community. There's no place in Christ's vision here for quick and dirty evangelism where you go in, you preach the gospel, and you dash on to the next town. This is about investing in people it's about taking time. This is not running out short-term mission. Short, but short-term mission must take place within the framework of long-term engagement. Christian mission is about growing disciples. It's about helping those disciples to fit into a Christian community. Now, as we look at the passage, we need to realise that as we look at these verses... We're in a very different situation to the disciples who first heard these words. For a start, the disciples who first heard these words had a very limited idea of the world. They couldn't go home and boot up Google Earth and see the whole world. They couldn't even get an atlas or a globe. They had an extremely limited view of what it was that Jesus was asking of them. They knew the Roman Empire, em, Empire but no further. The other thing is that they were right at the start. We 
are 2,000 years further on. We know the world far better, but we can also see what Jesus has done through the 2,000 years since then. Now, yesterday evening we took a quick sprint through those 2,000 years, and I'm not proposing to repeat that, but I'd like to show just a graph that we looked at yesterday evening of how the message that was proclaimed by those disciples has spread through the world. This comes from a book called The Church is Bigger Than You Think, which is written by Patrick Johnson, who's the editor of Operation World, that many of you will know. World A on this graph, that's the blue. Yep, the colours are the same up there as they are here. World A is the part of the world where people have never heard the message of Jesus. World B is the part of the world or those people who've heard the message but have chosen not to respond to it. And world C is the people who would call themselves Christians. Okay, all statistics like this are very difficult to gather and you can pick holes in them to some extent. But it gives us an idea, and a good idea, of how the message of Jesus Christ has gone around the world. At the time where we're speaking, about 20% of the world's population have never heard the message of Jesus Christ. Now before you think, oh well, that's not very many, 20%, remember that the world population has grown exponentially over the last 100 years or so, and there are more people now on the planet who've not heard the message than there were on the planet altogether a hundred years ago because of population growth. But there are about 55% of the world's population have heard the message of Jesus but have chosen not to respond in some way. And about a quarter of the world's population are Christians. That means about 80% of the world has had the opportunity to hear the message of Jesus. There is no nation on this planet where there are not believers. In many situations, the believers meet in secret, they meet in hiding, but there are Christians everywhere. So let's go back 2,000 years. There's Jesus on the hilltop saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. I said a wee while ago that that sounded as if Jesus was a megalomaniac. But he wasn't. And how do we know he wasn't? Because he was right. What he said all those thousand years ago has actually come true. That those uneducated, poor disciples went out with 300 years of persecution through the Roman Empire and yet the Christian message has spread around the world to the point where there's nowhere on the planet where there are not Christians. But the job isn't over yet. There's still plenty more to do. And as the world population grows faster than it's ever grown, the church doesn't just have to run to stand, st to stand still. We have to sprint. And the fields are still white to harvest. They're getting whiter because there's more people. Intensive agriculture to take them in the metaphor further. The, Lord, the message that the Lord Jesus gave those disciples has gone out to the whole world. But there's still more to do. So let's not get complacent. 
And let's read on in the passage. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Start ahead by saying mission starts with God, mission ends with God, mission is carried out in Christ's authority. And then lastly, the very last thing I'm going to say to you this weekend is that not only is it carried out in Christ's authority, it's carried out in Christ's presence. He promises that wherever we go, he will be with us. It's amazing. Wherever we go, Christ will be with us. My wife Sue and I used to work in Ivory Coast as translators with Wycliffe. And before we went, a verse from Joshua became very important to us. Joshua 1.9 Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That was very important. In Matthew, Jesus says, I am with you till the end of the age. Whatever point in time you have from that hillside on Galilee till the end of the age, throughout time, Jesus will be with us. In Joshua, we're told that wherever you go in geography, Jesus will be with us. Anywhere, in time or in space, and unless a physicist can give us another dimension, Jesus will be with us in every possible location, in time or in space. Even a TARDIS can't get you away from him. As we serve Jesus, as we go out to make disciples, he is with us everywhere and every when. So what does it mean that Jesus is with us? Why is this important? Well, tomorrow morning, I don't know how you feel going back to lectures, back to work. Sometimes you get in and people say, what did you do yesterday? Did you have a good time? Did you have a good weekend? And we feel embarrassed to say, well, actually I was at church yesterday. It can be embarrassing sometimes to admit we're Christians. You know, Jesus isn't embarrassed to own up to us. Wherever we go, whenever we go, he is there with us. And as you're facing those people who take the mickey out of you because you're a Christian, who tease you, he's there with you. He's not leaving go of you. And even if you're feeling embarrassed, he's not embarrassed by you and he'll stick with you. The second thing to think about is that whatever we have to do, Jesus knows what we're doing. He's there with us, preparing us for the different things we have to do. Ephesians 2.10 We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Think about it. Not only is God going to make sure that world mission succeeds, he's even worked out what it is he wants you and I to do for him tomorrow. He's prepared good works in advance for us. There are no surprises. Maybe surprises for you. But God isn't going to be surprised tomorrow by the things that turn up, by the things that happen. Because he's with you in that situation and he's prepared it in advance for you. I'd just like to 
close by illustrating this with some experiences from the, the work that Sue and I have done. I have the next picture. This gent is called Toilly by Laurent. Laurent is, comes from the Kouya people in Central Ivory Coast. The Kouya, until 1958, there were no Christians among them. But in 1958, some missionaries from WEC came to the area where Laurent lived. Laurent heard the gospel and he responded. He realized he had need of forgiveness. He realized he needed the presence of God in his life. And he turned to God and asked for forgiveness and was forgiven. And his relationship with God was established. He was the first Kuya ever to become a Christian. And for over 20 years, he was the only Kuya to become a Christian. Just imagine that. A Kuya, a group of about 12,000. It's not a very large people group. But he was the only person who spoke his language who was a Christian. Nobody else in his family, nobody else in his people group, for about 20 years. Now, Laurel realized that in order to grow as a Christian, he needed to read the scriptures in his own language. He had access to the Bible in French, but his French isn't brilliant. And he really needed the scriptures in his own language. So from the very first day he was a Christian, he told me he prayed every day for somebody to come to his village to translate the New Testament, translate the Bible into his language. Laurent became a Christian in 1958. Sue and I were both born in 1958. That means we're 47, don't work it out. When we were 30, we turned up to live in his village to translate the Bible into his language. He'd been praying for the whole of my life that I would get there. Before I went to school, primary school, junior school, I wasn't even a Christian. Senior school, when I became a believer, university, postgrad, training. All of that time, Laurent was praying for Sue and I, though he didn't know us, to turn up and come to his village to translate the New Testament into his language. I reckon after that he deserved Hudson Taylor or Billy Graham, but he just got us. And there he is, got a daft grin on his face, because he's holding a printout of the New Testament in his language. It wasn't easy. We could tell you stories about malaria, homesickness. The intellectual challenge of translating a New Testament is phenomenal. But the thing is, God had prepared the way. And God had prepared the way through the faithful prayers of Bailoro over 30 years. You can't make that stuff up. God was getting his work done. And we just had to plug in and do our bit. Because he was preparing it already. Next picture. This guy's called Didier. He's actually Laurent's nephew. And like Datsy, he found that he loved English. He started learning English at school and found he really liked it. Really enjoyed it. Now, in the region of Ivory Coast where we worked there were no secondary schools. And to do, advanced, to do from about um, 16 onwards, you had to go away to another region. And he went away to school about 50, 60 miles from home, but he was really enjoying English. 
And then he heard this news that an English couple had come to live in his village. And he thought this was brilliant. And he would come round to, to us whenever he was on holiday and practice his English with us. It was frustrating for us because we were trying to learn his language. Like, you know, you, you've got this wrong. We're here to learn your language, not to teach you ours. But we got on well and we established a friendship and we bounced backwards and forwards and we all learned a bit. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't interested in the gospel. But he was a nice kid and he was interested in English. So we talked to him. Over the years, he finished his secondary school. He went to university in the capital city, did a degree in English. Went on to do a master's. At that time, we had moved to the capital city and I'd been asked to take on a, a leadership role in the mission and so the task of doing the translation was falling more on Sue's shoulders and she needed somebody who could work alongside her. And we thought, well, perhaps Didier, students always want money. If he can give up a bit of time, come along and work, work with us and translate the New Testament into Kuya, that'd be cool. So we talked to Didier, he was very interested came along one morning a week, then two mornings, and then he started turning up every morning. We said, we're only paying you for two days. That's fine, I'll keep coming. And as he read the scriptures, as he started translating the scriptures into his own language, the word of God set his heart on fire. The living word became alive to him. And Didier realized, the same as his uncle had realized 40 years earlier, that he needed forgiveness. And through reading the translated scriptures, at that point still in rough draft, Didier gave his heart to the Lord. He's now a fairly big cheese with um, Scripture Gift Mission. He's the head of Scripture Gift Mission for West Africa. He was just a kid who wanted to learn English. But God was preparing the way for him. All we had to do was be there where God wanted us. And God used us. Sometimes God lets us see the things he's accomplishing through us. They're two good stories. I mean, the story of Didier is great. That sort of thing only happens in books. It doesn't happen to people like us. Very often, God does things through us without us ever knowing. And for most of us, eternity will only show what we've done. There are about three or four people in this room who perhaps haven't heard that, those stories before. But they're people we knew beforehand who prayed for us. And they didn't know what God had done through their prayers and through their financial support. As you serve God, you don't always know what he's doing. But we have the absolute certainty that as we serve him, he will accomplish his purposes. He will bring his word to the nations. And he invites us to be involved. I don't know how he's inviting you to be involved. Perhaps what he's really asking of you is that you pray. That's great, that's cool. He's really asking that you give yourself sacrificially to praying. He may be asking you to stick your hand deeper in your pocket. The financial needs of World Mission are amazing. He may be asking you to pack your bags and get on a plane to Timbuktu. But whatever he's inviting you to do, we have the absolute certainty that he will accomplish his purposes through you. And he's inviting you to join him. Only a fool would refuse an invitation like that. So please, don't be foolish.
Let's pray together. Lord,